And I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Surf's up, beach party fans. Here's part one of Donna's dive into the crystal clear waters of American International Pictures' beach party movie series. Part one is all about muscle beach party. And in this episode, what does Grant Advertising ad executive Robert Dillon, Donna's very own Don Draper type, have in store for her? A duet with king of the surf guitar, Dick Dale, of course. Plus, we're excited to bring you a special interview with Dick's wife and Donna's good friend, Lana Dale. Go, Donna. Chapter 6. Muscle Bustle The next day in Dallas was no better. Packing up to leave, I was watching TV and saw Lee Harvey Oswald get killed by Jack Ruby. I witnessed two murders in two days. To this day, it's incomprehensible to conceive of the lack of compassion that was shown toward our president. To give everyone who was present at the time the benefit of the doubt that somehow their feelings about President Kennedy were withheld to stay focused on what the agenda was is where I'd like to leave it. In reality for me, it is an incident that will remain suspended in time and my heart always ache. When JFK took office, I was only 13 years old. His leadership pertaining to physical fitness while I was still in school impacted me and my classmates. We looked up to him for caring enough about his country's people to set forth a mandate for us to improve our health through exercise. For all of JFK's imperfections, I think his innovative spirit has lived on. The previous president, Ike, as he was known, represented bomb drills at school that would cause a panic to rush under a table for safety. What a dichotomy! The only thing about President Eisenhower that I could relate to at the time was his general's military jacket, which became all the rage in a tartan plaid. I had one. Now I realize... He was warning citizens of the military-industrial complex agenda. He even coined atoms for peace to transform the perception of atomic energy, making it more about a source of energy. My son Joey was a member of a supergroup including Tom York and Nigel Godrich from Radiohead and Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers, calling themselves Atoms for Peace. The friendly pepper upper kept me so busy. My mother would have to meet my dad and I at the airport to exchange suitcases. We'd give her the dirty clothes and she would give us the clean ones and then back on the plane to the next destination where I would cut ribbons, kiss babies, shake hands, and perform in so many counties all over the Midwest and South. What a surprise for me when the genie was let out of the bottle the genie being Mr. Dillon. He had a master plan up his sleeve. When he conceptualized a new advertising campaign for Dr. Pepper, neither my family nor I realized how elaborate it would be. On December 4th, I was asked to go for a meeting at American International Pictures to meet 
Samuel Arkoff, his partner James Nicholson, and the Grand Wizard Mr. Dillon. As part of the plan to infiltrate the teen market on behalf of Dr. Pepper, now I was to be placed in a movie holding a Dr. Pepper bottle, my introduction to product placement. Man, this guy had it covered. I arrived at the offices of American International at 7165 Sunset Boulevard near the legendary Hollywood High School where one of my peers, Cher, graduated. I was introduced to Al Sims, the musical director of the upcoming film Muscle Beach Party. The film was a sequel to the wildly popular Beach Party starring Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. Mr. Dillon and the producers had played my Dr. Pepper radio commercials for Mr. Sims to integrate my singing into the film. He chose a song that Dick Dale was singing solo, written by Brian Wilson, Gary Usher, and Roger Christian, called Muscle Bustle. Brian had already gone into the studio and laid down the tracks, put down his own voice for background vocals. An enthusiastic Mr. Sims explained, I want you to sing a duet with Dick. Do you think you can handle that, Donna? <laughs> My standard reply was, sure. trepidations about singing with the king of the surf guitar until I met him for rehearsal at his home. Outside in his backyard, he had a pool with a dolphin swimming around and a cage nearby housing a very large cat. Yes, we rehearsed, but this impacted me the most. I was very taken aback by his menagerie, so our rehearsal faded into a blur. Also, Dick Dale was a man of few words, much like my dad. That part was familiar, only his private jungle was a little over the top. Soon afterward, while we were on the set, the king of the surf was very mild-mannered until, in the actual scene, when he lifted my arm up in the air to reveal my bare midriff. I thought to myself, I hope this doesn't infringe on my contract with Dr. Pepper, referring to the clause about not showing my navel. I certainly wasn't going to tell him what to do, and as usual, let it pass. It's crazy, but this scene, as well as the song, have become classics. On December 9th, I was to report to the studio on Bronson at 7 a.m., and then subsequently on the 11th on location at Topanga Canyon Beach, and back again the following day for my final day of filming. My first day of shooting Muscle Bustle, I was still donning my bubble hairdo. 
The director, Bill Asher, husband of Elizabeth Montgomery, the star of Bewitched, took me on to the set of what would become Big Drag's Cafe, <laughs> a hangout for dance and music. He sat me at a table with a bottle of Dr. Pepper. All around me were guys and girls that looked a few years older than me dressed in casual beachwear. Ponytails and bangs were flying as the girls shook their tushies to the music coming from the stage above. Little Stevie Wonder was making a guest appearance in the movie, too. I felt comforted that I wasn't the youngest person on the set. The guys dancing all around me were actors and surfers that were in most of the scenes of the movie. Then a girl wearing a flapper fringe outfit starts shaking her whole self. It was a lady named Candy Johnson, and that was her specialty. Another personality appeared. It was Don Rickles, playing the owner of this club. He made me nervous with his sharp remarks that were supposed to be jokes. I was so glad he never singled me out to ridicule. Annette fell in love while on the set of this movie with her future husband and father of her children, Jack Gillardi. One day I saw Annette and Jack cuddling in a booth, not far from where I was sitting at a restaurant named Nicodell's, nearby the studio. I tried not to invade their privacy, but when I'd glance over to see them from where I was sitting with my dad, it was clear to me that they were in love and made a gorgeous couple. The passion generated from their romantic corner of the world warmed my heart. It's always good to know that true love exists. My own experience confirms that happily. I sat there contemplating all these thoughts and kept them to myself, since my dad and I never spoke about feelings. Sam Arkoff would visit occasionally and always give me an encouraging greeting. You're doing great, Donna, would be his comment. I sure didn't realize my importance to the film being sponsored by Dr. Pepper. One day on the set, I was introduced to a journalist from Seventeen Magazine who wanted to do an article on me. The journalist who was to interview me was a guy in a suit who could have been any guy in a suit. There was really nothing fashion-related about him, and coming from a magazine like Seventeen, I was kind of thrown off balance that a woman wasn't chosen to interview me or at least a guy with style. Maury and I left with him to find a place. It might have been Nicodell or a local coffee shop to have lunch and conduct an interview. I started telling this man about my career and the kinds of things that I would usually say in an interview. It was all going well until the moment arrived when he asked me, what are your measurements? Immediately, I became very offended and said that I didn't want to tell him. My response really had nothing to do with my professional decorum or the restrictions in my Dr. Pepper contract about my weight. His question had struck a chord with me. My feelings of inadequacy were triggered. 36, 24, 36, the numbers I always heard of the perfect all-American beauty were not the numbers that I could use to describe myself. It's taken me all these years to understand the limitations I had inside me. My mother's comments about my inadequacies gave me feelings that I lacked something, like bigger breasts or a smaller nose. 
Then to have this man who did not fit the image of someone representing the fashion business and who looked more like a fuller brush salesman to me, asked this question, pushed those buttons and caught me off guard. I turned off. The journalist put his pencil down, closed his notebook and said, I guess we're not doing this. Although Maury was at the table with us, he didn't think to speak up. I felt abandoned. I have to say that my dad did work hard at the photography and was always by my side, but in that moment he basically sat there mute and didn't have the presence of mind to come to my defense. I was stunned. My mind automatically worried that this incident would taint my ability to provide for my family, even though two or three years later I bumped into the same journalist on a set, and he was very cordial. Until I met this man several years later, I couldn't let this incident go. It played over and over in my mind. On the chilly morning of January 1, 1964, I met Mr. Parker, CEO of Dr. Pepper, in Pasadena for the Rose Parade. Mr. Dillon from Grant Advertising was there as well, directing a photographer to take pictures of Mr. Parker and me next to the Dr. Pepper float that would be in the parade. Mr. Parker and I posed in front of the float, and I thought, oh no, do I have to write on that float? Part of my nature is shy and like a scared little girl wrapped tight in a young woman's bravado. Well, thankfully, I was only a spectator and was invited to stay for the day. To my surprise, Maury left me at 5.45 a.m. with Mr. Dillon and his lady friend. Why was he contradicting his overprotectiveness? What I thought was a work-related situation suddenly became a very awkward social arrangement. My inner conflict made me introverted. This is my work, I was thinking. Now I'm spending the day at a parade with, in a football game with the president of the ad agency for Dr. Pepper? With his girlfriend? I felt equality with Mr. Dillon, even though I was 20 years his junior. Nevertheless, no one ever thought to explain the circumstances so I could be prepared for it, or possibly even decline. I had become a commodity. The air of the morning chilled me to the bone. Was there ever an assumption that I loved the game of football enough to be tagging along with two adults? Well, that made me feel way out of place. And did someone ever assume that my dream was to ride in the Rose Parade? Because certainly I never expressed that. There was no discussion. I had no say. And yes, I was well-mannered on the outside, but that was a very thin facade. You might even think how crazy not to want to ride in the Rose Parade, and certainly I did ride in many parades for Dr. Pepper, but my true feelings initially were so different than what I learned to adapt to. There was never really any downtime in between commitments due to the tension I felt from my parents to always be ready for an audition or an interview. A definite reversal of role had taken place. Outwardly, it appeared as though I had adult supervision, but emotionally, they were dependent on me. I really could never relax and let my nerves calm down. 
Early in February, I auditioned for the television series Mr. Novak, starring James Franciscus, and was hired on the spot. I reported two days later at 10.30 in the morning for a one-day shoot. I would only have one or two lines, but it would be the first time that I had any dialogue in front of a camera in a dramatic setting. In my scene, I had to walk down a school hallway. There was a long distance between me and the camera, maybe 80 feet. Take one, and the camera started rolling. I just froze. I couldn't say a thing, and I couldn't move. The lights were shining, and I thought, uh-oh. Cut. The camera stopped rolling. Time is money, and so only a couple of minutes later, we were ready for take two. My fear disappeared, and this time it went smoothly. Maybe because it was the school setting, but what I learned is there is truth in having stage fright. It can happen to anyone, and actually in any circumstance, not necessarily in front of a camera. Following my diary on my 17th birthday, I did a show for Dick Dale at the Aragon Ballroom. That was in Venice, California. Glenn Campbell was also playing that night. And the CEO of Capitol Records, Boyle Gilmore, was in the audience, and he saw us perform. Mr. Gilmore signed me as well as Glenn. Now, both of us were capital artists. But we both started on crest. Mr. Gilmore assigned me to Dave Axelrod as producer. As Muscle Beach Party was released into theaters, the impact that it had on audiences all over America was outstanding. My initial feeling about doing my part in the movie was a little embarrassing. The zany antics, pie-throwing, butt-shaking silliness were not exactly the image I felt comfortable in. But when I attended my first premiere in Middle America, I realized how seeing the ocean impacted young audiences. If you're living in flatlands with no water all around you, seeing the ocean is breathtaking. The notion of kids dancing on the beach and surfing the waves was beyond a teenager's capacity in, say, Nebraska or Iowa. Most of my age group in that region never saw the ocean, smelled salt water, felt the force of a wave crash against your body, and the cold temperature of the sea raising goosebumps on your flesh. The ocean has a life force that can be overwhelming as well as inspiring. After all, our tears are the same composition as the ocean, and for that matter, over 80% of our body is saline. No wonder one would have an emotional bond on an unconscious level. For a teenager to sit in a dark theater and be in those waves touches every emotion available to a human being. The constant motion of the water is a symphony itself. This registered with the youth of America. Dr. Pepper and Robert Dillon of Grant Advertising had made a wise and very lucrative choice. Let's return to something that's become more and more apparent over the last few chapters, Donna, and that's the idea that you were put into situations with adults while you were a 16-year-old girl and sometimes even younger and had to fend for yourself. 
Uh, you know, in a previous episode, we spoke about the Bill Balance situation, the, the number one DJ at KFWB, who, as part of, you know, your promotion sort of uh, duties, you you went out on, you know, almost a double date with with this man and his his son. And, you know, Bill Balance was someone that was probably in his 40s at that point. His, his son was around your age, but you kind of had to go and do that and sort of had a terrible experience as a result. And then now in the reading that we had today, you talk about going to the Rose Bowl with Mr. Dylan and his date, you know, not that anything untoward happened or anything like that, but you were, you were set off with these adults in these situations and, and kind of had to fend for yourself. And then you talk also about the interview, even when Maury, your, um, you know, adopted dad was at the table, you had this, this situation with the 17 magazine, uh, writer where he asked you an inappropriate question about, about measurements. So, you know, I, I, I think it, it really becomes apparent that you were put into so many of these situations that someone of your age shouldn't have had to have dealt with. Yeah. Yeah, Adam. Um, well, I guess a lot of us uh, at a very young age, when you really look at it, you know, and look mm-hmm. at your life, um, you you may have been in a situation where um, you end up parenting your parents Mm -hmm. and um and you know at at the time you might feel overburdened or you know question why aren't why aren't they taking care of me more but Mm -hmm. um you know you i think it might be more common than than we would normally think because you know you mothers and fathers don't necessarily have to be mature adults And they have issues too. So the way that I came into the world at a very early age, you know, I realized that, you know, I had to take that kind of parenting reversal role with with my parents. And um, maybe when it got to the point of outside of my very intimate circle, Mm. Uh, with an executive, you know, like uh, Dylan, who ran the advertising company, mm. um, and just kind of being abandoned by by my my dad, uh, just yeah. dropped off and not being told the circumstances. Mm. You know, I was I was given kind of that voyeurism into uh, how you know uh, inconsiderate <laughs> you know, uh, people <laughs> people can be. Um, that they're very much concerned about their own, you know, their own interests. And Mm. um, certainly uh, that's, there's an epidemic of that now, you know, that with uh, adults that just seem to only really think about themselves and they're not thinking about, you know, how, how children are affected. And, you know, I have to admit that because I live that way, um, mm. I was a, kind of a victim of circumstance, you know, just of my environment, because, you know, I'm sure that I, I'm positive that I brought that into my child rearing with my own children, you know, mm. because even if I had a certain awareness, you know, of that, still, you know, you do, you, how do you say that, Adam, you know, when you're repeating that's... the patterns? Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? And I know we've spoken about this before. That idea that the, you know, the the way that you're you're raised and and the way that you have relations with your parents that 
I, I think, you know, you can definitely break that cycle, but because it's so often so ingrained and, and just so unconscious, you know, and until we can really notice that for what it is, often we do tend to repeat those patterns unconsciously, whether it's with, I guess, subsequently with children, whether it's with intimate relationships, you know, as, as you become an adult um, and so on, until you sort of have that awareness. I remember you sort of talking about a, a song that you had written uh, called Children Raising Children. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spoken about that before, and I know we'll, we'll probably bring that up in a, in a subsequent episode. But, um, you know, I think that's so, that's so true that often, um, as, as we've had conversations about before, this idea that, um, you know, parents come in ill-equipped um, for parenthood, but, um, you know, they, they do, I guess, what they can, whether we call it the best they can or, or, yeah. or not. And they and and often that's something that we then have to untangle, um, yeah. you know, in the future. Yeah. yeah. One time I was in therapy in Los Angeles, and mm. um, uh, what is it called? Gestalt. Yeah. You know, she asked me. Her name was Beverly Dennis. She was such a wonderful psychologist, and um, she had me sit in three different chairs, mm. and she mm. said, "Okay, this is your chair. This is who you are now." This is your mother's chair. This is your grandmother's chair. Mm. And, you know, and when you sit in each chair, I want you to go to how that person behaved that you are aware of, you know, and see how it feels. Mm. And I'm going to give you a circumstance, you know, a situation that you can have a point of view about as each person. And that's when I realized, you know, that my mother... I think her growth was stunted maybe around when she was 12 years old because mm. she, her emotions were like a pubescent. She, yeah. she yeah. didn't, I mean, she was very reactive and um, like a, like a, a preteen, like, a, you know, a 12 year old kid mm. that's just not quite filled with rebellion, but you know, there's, they're, they're very volatile. Mm. Mm. And, and then I went to my, my grandmother and uh, I realized, I, I remember the stories that I heard of when she um, was 11 years old. She told me that she had to escape from Russia. And she Amazing. was yeah. one of many, many children. And she had a twin brother. And they were separated. Mm. And she ended up running through, you know, like, it sounded to me like like where military was, like ditches where, yeah. where military was. And barefoot and with just a dress on. And she was just escaping. Wow for her life at at 11 years old. And then she ends up, you know, coming to America and um, marrying and having uh, children. And, you know, and it's like, what, what background do you have? Mm. You know, what Mm. are your resources to raise other children with, you know, you're basically in survival. And absolutely. And so that, that was very meaningful to me. And that's when I, 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 that song, it's actually children having children because ah, right. yeah. the idea was, you know, children having children, having children for centuries, you know, and it goes on. Yes. Yeah. And until, you know, I have to say that, um, no one's perfect, but you know, I'm very proud of, of my kids who seem to have evolved from where their childhood experiences were with mm. me and maybe their dad um, 
and raising their children. Of course, like I say, no, <laughs> nothing, life is not perfect, but mm. the, the relationship seems to be um, more balanced into parent child. It doesn't seem yeah. like any one of my kids raise their children in that imbalance. You know, the kid yeah. knows who the parent is and the parent knows knows who the kid is and absolutely and and it's a it, you know it's again it goes back to that safety factor you know because mm -hmm. even if you're stern with the kid if you're loving lovingly stern you know I, I i have this other little story that that jared you know my my present husband who we've been in relationship for 25 years and have known yeah. each other forever um mm. And uh, he was my prom date. So we've known each other since we were That's teenagers. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, when his father passed away uh, in like 1999, he was 80, yeah. 89 years old. And his mom was 88. And she came to live with us when we were in Hawaii. And she, I got to know her because she lived for uh, seven more years. She passed away when mm -hmm. she was 95. And mm. she would tell me the story about her father in England. Mm. She was she was born in London, and she said her father and then, and she was one of five children, and she was the youngest. And she said her father would come home from work, and tell and they were kind of in a middle class family, and mm. he would come mm. home from work, and you know one of the kids would you know get get a little rowdy or something, and and she'd say. And my dad would start raising his foot up in the air like he was going to stomp someone. And <laughs> oh my goodness. yeah, and he, and and he got our attention. You know, all five of us would look at our father like, yeah. oh. And then, as soon as he knew he got our attention, he would raise, he would lower his foot slowly to the ground and <laughs> gently place his foot so that they knew that he was giving them a safe place, mm. but also who was, you know, in charge and yeah, you know, yeah. who, who made them feel safe. And maybe I'm not saying that quite correctly, but. Oh, no, I, I think you're definitely on that because there's <laughs> certainly that idea. And I just, I, I kind of, I just like that these, you know, these kids just watching this foot slowly <laughs> descend to the ground. <laughs> but you're so, you know, you're so right that, um, you know, there's often in the in the psychology literature this idea of different types of parenting styles, and you know, it kind of differs in terms of how many we say there are. But generally, there's kind of these ideas of of these at least these four styles, and ones that authoritative sort of style where you know it's clear who the parent is and who the child is, but it's not this this over disciplinarian. It's it's setting you know effective boundaries and good boundaries and allowing the child to explore their environment, but to have that safety net and to feel safe, but also to feel that they can explore they can um uh, you know have their own autonomy but also they know who the parent is and and what the um the boundaries are whereas a lot of those other styles i guess we're talking about can be that authoritarian where it's really about that overly harsh disciplinarian role but not not with the the sort of warmth and 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 loving approach to it yeah more ego the more ego driven yeah. and so it's it's about control and i think getting back mm. to your question you know in these mm. various circumstances with the number one dj in los angeles you know this guy yeah. bill balance who is a heck of a nice guy um mm. and uh, you know professionally but on a social basis again you know i was abandoned by my parents 
you know, they just, mm. they, they just put me in a situation, drop me off and I had to sink or swim. And, um, and the, and with Dylan as well at the, at the Rose Bowl. Mm. And then with mm. this journalist who was, I felt very um, invasive when he asked me an unnecessary question, you know, um, and I decided not to answer it. And then he, you know, yeah. his, his controlling nature, I didn't, mm. I didn't know him at the time, but again, mm. you know, his ego said, okay, well, if you're not going to cooperate with me, we're done. And that's really just, I mean, first of all, the idea of this, this middle-aged man, and you described him as a fuller brush salesman, yeah. kind of looking like a fuller brush salesman, which, which for, for, I'm sure some of our listeners remember what that, what that image is, but essentially, <laughs> um, you know, if we explain it to them, it's kind of that kind of middle typically middle-aged man he's got the wide brim kind of hat and the suit and he goes door to door with these various brushes and by that we mean brooms mops you know cleaning products i'm sure event i know eventually there were cosmetics with the women becoming the fuller brush yeah the, the avon lady the, yeah that or, kind of thing i know Lucille would sell encyclopedia mm. britannica door to door yes well, we got Funk and Wagnall. Okay, Funk and Wagnall. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, which I think was a laughing thing that they used to talk about. You know, I, I, I learned it in my Funk and Wagnalls. <laughs> but, you know, I think I'm sure they were the Fuller Brush girls, though, back then. And it has to be. I know Lucille Ball was in a movie called The Fuller Brush, um, <laughs> you know, girl. But, you know, I mean, this, this middle-aged, you know, man asking this teenage girl, you know, what are your measurements? I mean, that's just, you know, an, an inappropriate question i mean maybe like it could have been something to do with maybe they needed that for some reason but to approach it in that way and in that situation it's just not not appropriate but again you know as you said you know maury's sitting at the table and rather than intervening and saying hey that's that's not where we're going you know as your dad or your manager because that's what he was you know you were led to sort of fend for yourself and again as you said not have that teenage girl reaction of 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 being able to experience well, and behalf, you know, what you were feeling in that yeah, moment. Yeah, in behalf of, mm. of uh, you know, kind of describing Maury's background, you know, mm. um, much later in life, I discovered that um, he was sent to an orphanage when he was four That's and right. a half years yeah. old and lived there for almost five years with his brother, his older brother, who yeah. was seven at the time. So, they had that abandoned experience, mm, mm. and and that was due to illness. That was due that to their mother having tuberculosis. Yeah, and they eventually did go back, but they were in that go back to after the five home. years. They were yeah, they were in there and, for a long time. And during that time, their father, who was working, couldn't visit that often, or chose not to visit that often. Mm. Who knows? But um, you know, so that's that's you know the underlying um stigma that an experience like that leaves with you mm. and then you maybe inadvertently pass it on because i, I was abandoned so much you know and For and sure. so i would say that you know in understanding his behavior but you know, it didn't come until I was much, much older yeah, for, for him sure. to actually and, admit, you know, what was going on. And he never talked about and, it. And that must have made a lot of, a lot of, well, some sense then. And, and particularly when you were talking about, you know, the idea of doing that chair work with, with Beverly, that very powerful technique of developing insight. And I, I you know, as you said, I think, it, uh, I think you alluded to this idea of empathy for, you know, even your parents, you know, experiences, not that that makes it right or not that that, 
did not have a tremendous effect on you or, or anyone else that you know has these these situations but it does sort of give you that insight and I think you're talking about when you sometimes have that insight into the patterns that you've grown up with it can help you to try not to repeat them um you know again and again forever or you know or if you're caught up in you know like when I married at such an early age and started a family you know Mm. um it's it's um circumstantial you know things happen and um and then later on in life you have a chance to reflect but I would say that it's a blessing as long as you're alive to gain awareness Mm. and learn, Mm. learn from either your mistakes or, you know, or just lack of awareness. Um, Because when, when you have these um, neurosis, is that what you call them, Adam? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, That you're not consciously portraying yourself that way. Mm. You know, Mm. these, these are behaviors that are, pretty unconscious absolutely so you if you act out a certain way you know it's it's i would say that it it, to be young let's say in your 20s and who knows i mean even when you're younger but in your 20s and 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 starting to have children that if you come from an environment that hasn't developed a very strong foundation uh, it's, mm, it's, mm. it's pretty tough. Even if you're a loving person, it's pretty tough not to pass on, you know, these neuroses that you've acquired, um, by the family that, that you're with or the people that raise you. Yeah. And that emotional awareness, I think as well, like, like you're suggesting that sometimes you can have this very, um, you know, this reaction, whether it's, uh, um, you know, something happens and you have this very surprising reaction, almost, almost this, you know, visceral reaction and, and being out of question, where did that come from? You know, where's that, where's that anger or where's that rage or where's that, you know, whatever it is, you know, where does that come from? I think that's a really important yeah. part of emotional awareness and, and, and insight to, to understand that stuff. But as you said, because it is so foundational often, it's a process. And I think we all have that kind of fantasy of, you know, one day you'll be standing out on the beach looking at the ocean and going, I finally figured everything out. And of course, that's not the case. It's a constant, <laughs> it's a constant yes. process. It'd be lovely if that yes. was the case, you know, where we're talking about beach films today you know if we could look at it at uh you know leo carrillo beach and and feel that we know everything but it's it's that process that continues good, good old mother earth providing us with the sea that that saline solution mm. how many times have i shed tears and joined my tears in in the, the mother ocean you know <laughs> mm. the deep mm. sea um and, you know, and thinking about people that are in the beach party movies, for instance, mm. you know, the duet that I did with Dick Dale and Muscle Beach Party. Yes. You know, yeah. Um, he personally never talked about it with me, but um, mm. I've come to know that it was difficult in his upbringing. You know, he he didn't particularly mm. Mm. um choose to play guitar he was so it was a master at it amazing i mean my goodness um amazing yeah i mean we're talking about visceral or you know just the way that he plays you know guitar he's playing the yes you know (laughs) as a way to put it and if anyone hasn't seen him please you know listen to his music and and go onto youtube yes um, because it's tremendous yes yeah and um you know i mean they called him the 
the um, king of king of the hello. <laughs> there's, Lu- there's Lucy giving her uh, her yeah, impression. The king of um, the surf guitar, you know, and but absolutely. apparently, you know, he had a dominating father, and um, mm, you know, mm. I, I, maybe like Brian Wilson, who actually uh, co-wrote the song that we duetted on, muscle, yeah, muscle. and yeah, produced absolutely. it. Actually, he. He, Brian Wilson, whom I've I've worked with, but you know, w- never had like a personal relationship. I sang with him on uh, Shindig, uh, and I'm, yeah, uh, yeah, on the exactly. Christmas show, I think. Yeah. And you know, and then um, did concerts with him. Um, but you know, I was always kind of separated out, so I didn't really get to know him that that well. Um, my first husband actually did when when Brian was going through his very yeah. difficult time. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there there was uh, some intervention with my ex husband, and uh, I think that that helped a lot for Brian to mm-hmm. be the man mm-hmm. he is today. Um, and so happy that he's still around because oh, Absolutely. You know, his yeah. his pet sounds are that's just a masterpiece. <laughs> Absolutely, we listen to that one quite regularly to this day, and it's just you know tremendous. And and just to remind you know readers in terms of where where your ex husband comes in, um, Lenny, of course, um, you know a masterful producer, music producer himself. It's interesting you talk about, and I know we've got an interview coming up with with Dick's widow, Lana Dale. Oh, Lucy, you're so darling. She's she's augmenting all of these different subjects. It's amazing. It's the it's the reverb of the you know of the guitar or the uh, you know whatever else. I'm just going to get okay. her a snack. This is this this shows our our, our listeners that, that we're live and and in the moment. So I'm just going to stop. For does a Lucy does Lucy the, like uh, listening to music? Noise. Um, oh, that's a good question. Certainly, we we've always got a record on in the house, and she seems she seems quite blissed out most of the time. Um, you know, around five o'clock in the evening, she makes her own her own music <laughs> when she wants to have dinner. But but um, you know, it's um, it, it, just in in reading a little bit about um, you know a, about Dick and this idea that he didn't necessarily want to become a you know a musician, but he he had that talent and and he was kind of almost pushed a bit into it. I found something that I thought you'd you'd find quite interesting, and this was from an interview he did about ten years ago um, with a journalist, uh, Sean. Uh, Paho, I hope I've got that right in Miami, in the Miami New Times, and he was asked about how he started in music, and he said he actually always wanted to be a cowboy singer, and he listened Ooh. to Hank Williams, and of course, you have that story um, of being really touched by Hank Williams. The first, music as the first two voice and a half that old. penetrated my heart, absolutely, and and he, you know, his his sound, and we were talking a little bit about his sound, this idea of you know, where that sound came from. And, of course, he was the king of the surf guitar. And I think he, so much of his sound was was wanting to reflect or to emulate the sounds of, of waves, as, as, he, mm. as he kind of said. Um, but uh, in, in many interviews he kind of said, but he was also, he often also said that he was inspired by the animals that he oh, looked after. Yes. You have that great story. <laughs> oh, Adam. <laughs> to, about, about that zoo. That I know. I wish you could in. have been there. <laughs> but mm. if, if you were there, you would be holding Lucy for her life. because Absolutely. He was the original Tiger King without the <laughs> Close to it, I tell you. Yeah, when, when I was told that I was going to be doing this duet, it was arranged for me to go to Dick Dale's house and rehearse 
So, you know, mm, uh, mm. Maury obviously drove me there and um, we met by his pool and where his pool mm, was, mm. he had cages. I think there were like two giant cages stacked up with big yeah. cats, um, you know, like a, maybe a mountain lion or, so, you know, some big cats yeah and yeah. um and and but i mean they were behaved they didn't growl or anything fortunately but there they were and mm. then in his pool he had a dolphin isn't that just yeah that's just <laughs> and so the rehearsal for me was kind of oblivious because i couldn't take my eyes off of his animals it was just like yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> when it came time to to record it and and then perform it, you know, that was very spontaneous and uh, improvised. In that same interview that I referred to, he actually said that at one point, you know, he was, when surfing kind of in his early life became his life, he was really into surfing, but he said at the same time is that he was raising over 40 different species of animals and he included uh, lions, tigers, elephants, leopards, hawks, eagles, everything. And the reason he said, and this is a quote from him, he goes, you name it and I've raised them to preserve their breeds before the poachers mm. killed them all into extinction. Yeah, I had all these animals. I lived with them, slept with them, ate with them, and I would add rehearsed music with them. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's just a, you know, that's just an amazing image to sort of think of what, what his, what his um, home well, you know, his, looked his, like. Well, his guitar playing was so filled with passion mm. um you know i i actually sang uh muscle beach party in malibu when he was performing and um just yeah. just you know yeah. with the band just before he went on and um that's actually when i met mm. lana and um who became yeah, a, a good course. friend and um and the people there the young people in malibu surf people that are so faithful to that sport. It's like a religion. And when I when I was at this place, this place in Malibu where Dick um, headlined and I opened for him, um, the, the, there is, you know, he could have been Elvis Presley in that moment. He couldn't do mm, a wrong mm. thing. And all the while he was performing and these young people who you wouldn't you would think that he would attract people more in in the boomer generation? Yeah, the kind of ones that had listened to him in that early sixties, um, you know, but time. But surfing up then. made it cross all generations, and so the there were so many young people there. While Dick Dale was performing, Lana was explaining to me how you know she had a nursing background. And um, how she was taking care of Dick because he had um, very serious uh, health condition. Yeah. um, You know, she managed to um, preserve his his health Mm. for quite quite a few years um, until, you know, just not that long ago, he passed away. Mm. And she was so generous that she offered to talk about her beloved, uh, her husband, and, um, and, you know, how she cared for him and what he meant to her. And uh, so I welcome you to listen to our interview. 
Yeah, and I think, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a really, you know, um, emotional interview from Lana. But I, I think, given that you two have known each other, well, you know, relative for a relatively brief time, I think you've kind of got that, um, you know, an emotional connection there, you know, with her. And certainly, she comes across as a very caring, compassionate person. Um, so. I think our our listeners are very lucky to hear from hear from you know Lana who who knew you know Dick Dow I think as as you sort of alluded to he was one of those guys that he you know he gave a lot of interviews and he, he continued to perform you know um, for so long but in in some ways I think he was in a you know an enigma to some people that he was he was someone that was um, um, you know a bit of a mystery to people and and certainly you know I, I found a couple of little. Um, stories and quotes from him that I, that I think might, you know, lead quite nicely into our interview with Lana. But just in terms of, you know, we were talking about when when people would go to his shows and it would really cross generations because he was this masterful musician. Um, you know, some people that are fans of him might be aware that in terms of Leo Fender, who, of course, um, you know, is, is um, you know, responsible. maker. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. The Stratocaster. Um, you know, this is this is from Pitch, uh, an article um, from uh, Pitchfork by a, a journalist, Stephen Thomas Elwine. Um, when Dick passed away, he he wrote a a tribute to him, and this was um, sort of the story of of how Fender actually worked with Dick Dale, and he said that you know Leo Fender heard um, tales of Dale, um, of Dick Dale's righteous concerts at the Rendezvous Ballroom in Orange County, where the guitarist continually pushed his amps to the point of destruction in pursuit of a throttling sound that emphasised the low end. Soon enough, Fender was working with the guitarist to develop one of the first stacked guitar amps where the amplifier box rested upon the speaker cabinet. Leo named the showman in tribute to Dick's skills as a performer. So Fender was actually working with Dick Dale based on his just, you know, out-of-this-world guitar playing to develop amps as well as... Um, as Dick Dale told it in other interviews, to to try out a lot of Fender's guitars um, to push them to their ultimate limits. So again, you know, I really do encourage our listeners to to seek out um, you know Dick's work. They're probably aware of of, of Mizaloo from um, mm-hmm. you know that had a new life through Pulp Fiction. But um, you know, I, I found a um, a cool quote from Dick Dale that I think might be good to sort of oh. um, wrap up with. And I think you'd relate to this as a musician, but he said, music is just an expression of feeling that comes out of your body. And that's basically it. Ditto. (laughs) I would add one more thing. It comes out Mm. of your body. It also comes from your soul. ladies I know, and wife of the king of surf guitar, 
Dick Jail. You know, <laughs> Dick and I met on the set of Muscle Beach Party where we sang our duet, Muscle Bustle. Uh, I'm curious, when did you meet Dick? Well, I met Dick actually for the very first time in 2008 in Port St. Lucie in Florida because I was born and raised in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I was with my parents. But it actually goes back to when I first wrote him a letter when I was very young. And I was explaining to him in the letter, because I'm a letter writer and a card writer. I love that. <laughs> yes, I'm old school. And um, I wrote him a letter, and I expressed how deeply sad I was over the fact that he had rectal cancer in the early 60s during the making of the Beach Party movies, and he had to have major surgery and was then told that he would not live. He only had three months to live. Oh yes, and therefore, you know, in the letter, I was just expressing uh, how I felt about what he had to go through, and he replied to me by writing a letter back, responding with a letter and saying, all these very nice things. And he said, you know, the only other person that ever said that to me the way you said it was my mother. Oh, my goodness. And he said, you remind me of my mother. And how many times have you heard that from, from, from them? But anyway, he responded to me saying, uh, you know, my mother was born in July. And I said, isn't that funny? I was born July 15th. Amazing. And he said, he said, that explains it. And from there, it just became a love story. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then of course, uh, we won't discuss the last two marriages because one was a business arrangement, and I don't want to discuss the other one uh, for various reasons. But my husband had lost everything in his life four times. Mm. And... You know, I'm a very compassionate person. I come from complete poverty. Um, my mother was an angel and a great artist, uh, and I still promote her work to this day. She passed one month after my husband last year. My, oh. husband, my husband passed March 16th, 2019, Saturday at 10 p.m. at night at Loma Linda Hospital. And my mother passed in St. Petersburg, Florida, on April 26, 2019, just one month later. And uh, it just devastated me. She passed from uh, breast cancer. Yeah, and she had multiple sclerosis like I do. So I, I've been through a great deal in the last year and a half. Um, still very, very devastated. Missed both of them beyond words was very close to both people, never left my mother's side growing up, never left my husband's side once we came together. So, you know, it's a love story, Donna. And my husband used to talk about it from the stage. And um, Well, fact, you must have been an incredible inspiration for him. Well, you know, I worshipped him and always will. I look up to him. He taught me a great deal. He was a father image, a husband, a best friend, a brother. He was everything rolled into one. And he he used to say, 
gee, you know what this reminds me of? And I'd say what? Because he had a very high IQ. He was a genius. And I don't think people realize how incredibly brilliant, talented, and what a great person he was. He he blew my mind from his very first letter on. And it really was, I always tell people love that first letter. I mean, it was. It, it was. Beautiful. It is. Well, it is. Well, I remember when we met in Malibu and Dick was, um, well, that was a few years ago, but I know that you told me you know, his health was deteriorating. And yet, when he performed in front of oh, however many of those fans of his in Malibu, um, his his energy was electric, and he didn't miss a beat. So I want to ask you a question. With your health care background, how did you care for your husband all those years before his passing? Well, it was very easy because for me, when I was a little girl, I loved older people, and I used to help them, take care of them, do whatever I could. If I mean, if they asked me to take out the garbage or sweep the floor or, um, you know, sit and listen to stories of the past, I was I was ready, willing, and able. And I was a sickly child. I was an only child, unspoiled, because uh, my mother, she used to say, don't give all your toys away, please, because I used to give everybody everything I had, Donna. I'm serious. I mean, yes. I, I was I pretty bad. I was pretty bad. So my mom used to say, oh, my, my gosh. She said, Lana, I'm raising a kid that just, you know, and and I used to tell her, Mommy, I think I'm going to be a nun. I think when I grow up, I may be a nun. And I've never been married in my life. And my husband was my first marriage, my love of my entire life. He said the same of me. But taking care of him, it was easy. Because the minute that I stepped on California soil, first of all, I was in love with California and the beauty of it. And deeply in love with my husband by that time and I just couldn't wait to get to him so yeah <laughs> I'm serious I could I could not wait to come to him and he asked my parents over the phone because he used to call them twice a day every day not to mention he was on with me um well at least 12 to and I'm not kidding 12 to 15 hours a day seven days a week and I had to put the phone on my hip so <laughs> that I could carry him around while he was talking to me. That's just, incredible. We were, we were destined to be together. We were one person. Mm -hmm. I always tell the Dickdale music lovers we're one, one person, one soul. And, you know, my husband never wanted to go into the business. Mm -hmm. So his father was his manager. Uh, that's another story that'll that'll be in his bio one day, and I am going to write a book about our love story one day mm. as well, Donna. Of I want course. you to know that. You yeah, and, yeah, and and 
getting back to the medical part of it, well, I had a lot of experience. I worked at the St. Petersburg Surgery Center, the Bayfront Center, the VA Hospital. Uh, and by the time I got to my husband, he said to me, Lana, I, I really feel bad because I've had the surgeries. I've had two surgeries. And one of them was he had to have his stomach cut open from his heart down to the growing. Um, and, I mean, he just was cut zigzag. And that's another story. Uh, they had to go into his stomach because there were issues when they were doing the surgery. His um, organs were like concrete from the radiation and the chemo, mm. and they had to chip away at his organs in order to complete the stoma bag surgery. But you told and me that you applied um, oxygen therapy? Yeah, I used different things. First of all, when I came to him, he was on Urban Mate tea around the clock. He believed in that solely. And he also liked strawberry spiritine. He used to get the big canisters, 2.4 ounces. And when I came along, uh, I had found out from some Lebanese people uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, about hydrogen peroxide 35%. Mm -hmm. And it's pure oxygen. And mm -hmm. cancer does not like oxygen. I do. So, I do know that. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know. And, you know, Donna, my husband was willing to try various uh, homopathic things uh, because he wanted to be cured. He wanted to stay alive. And he said, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to die before I met you. I, I really, mm -hmm. and I hate to say that in front of, you know, the viewers and everything. But he said, I was very sad and I was, you know, holding on to to life because I had lost my mom and my dad. Mm. And he was going through some other things, which I won't get into. My husband had never took a drink of alcohol in his life. Mm. He had smoked cigarettes as a teenager, and he never did one drug in his life. Mm -hmm. And I swear that on, on my mother's grave. Mm. Uh, he, he was very against drugs, very against alcohol. And yet he had to perform in venues, you know. He would stand up on stage and he would say, you know, do yourselves a favor. Don't drink alcohol. Yeah. It's, not, it's not good for your body. That's you, true. Your body follows your mind. And here's my wife over here. My wife over here, Lana Dale, she doesn't, she doesn't drink. She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't smoke cigarettes. And she hasn't ever done it in her life. And he said, Stay away from drugs. They'll kill you. And then he would bring up Jimi Hendrix, whom he taught the, the sl slide on the guitar to. Uh, oh, he back did? When, yeah, back when he worked with Little Richard in a beer bar, and that was in the late 50s. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of history, Donna. I mean, we could be here all day with the history. Um, well, we'll, come, we'll reconvene, I promise, in the future. Okay. And, you know, as far as the medical goes, we would discuss medical issues, uh, how we can we could try to battle these issues mm. naturally. 
uh, because Dick was an, a person that liked natural homeopathic, uh, you know, remedies. Yeah, mm -hmm. remedies, medicinal remedies. He didn't care for uh, the pills. Synthetic the and yes, he did. He didn't care for the pills the doctors gave you. So he he was all about uh, healing naturally. Is what I'm mm -hmm. trying to say. Yes. Yes. And I want to follow up on that particular concept because before I called you today and we started this interview, I was literally seeing a healing on this planet. And I was going to call on you to enter this prayer with me to crusade for healing of this planet. Amen. But humans, animals. Air, life, sea life, all life, mountains, rocks, trees, all all life that um, is part of, of what you're saying is we all need healing and we can only do it with spirit and with the love and with natural, you know, let it all be natural. I agree with you, Donna, 100%. We're on the same wavelength there. You so, know. Lana, darling, what are you doing now to preserve Dick's legacy? Well, it will be some time before I can begin a book uh, regarding his career from 1955 on. But in the meantime, uh, I've been battling missing him and my my mother as well i've been on facebook answering i mean thousands of messengers uh that i get from the dickdale music lovers as well as you know i reply to their responses on there uh, i've got a few people who tell me all oh, facebook uh you know you you know it's not a good idea you know but i love facebook because i can convey his history i can reach out to these people and, you know, give them accurate and precise history regarding his career, whereas the web is full of misconceptions and it's not at all accurate. I mean, there's a lot missing on Wikipedia and mm. on the web in general. I mean, mm. I spent most of the time when I would book events with my husband, I spent most of the time correcting their PR mm -hmm. uh, before they put it out there. And I know you know, mm -hmm. you know, you understand that. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of, you know, like I said, it, it wasn't accurate. And I, and I was getting uh, very uh, disturbed by that because I want to say that you have to get that information out there so that, so that children when they're growing up, mm -hmm. they realize the accomplishments of mm -hmm. Dick Dale, a.k.a. Richard A. Mansoor, who he was, how he fought, um, you know, the movies that he made. He made six films. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was the music to countless films and commercials mm -hmm. over the years. Um, you know, he was the music to Wild Wild Mustang, you know, the first Mustang commercial. I mean, this man was a genius. He was a pioneer. 
He was a creator of his own music sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to I want to state this too. And please, I don't want to leave until I get into your bio too, because Donna, you have got an extremely uh, wonderful uh, past history. I mean it. It needs to every detail of your beloved history needs to be out there. You have got a huge history. Many sweetheart. Thank you. Well, I'm forever correcting people, Donna. Forever. I mean, uh, oh, I promote you like you wouldn't believe. Um, But getting back to Dick, Dick, Dick is a a presence, a powerful, mighty, potent presence to be reckoned with. He was from Boston, which you're from Boston. That's correct. He grew up in Quincy. And in the summer times, he stayed with his grandparents. Uh, his grandfather's name was Tony Donsilich. And he, he stayed with his Polish grandparents uh, in Whitman, Massachusetts. And he loved his grandpa. He mm-hmm. adored his mother. Um, and he loved his cousin, Bobby Thomas, uh, a great deal. And he has another cousin who's still with us. And you met him on the... Um, uh, when you were doing the beach party movies, his name is Freddie Thomas. Oh. He lives in Mulholland Drive in, in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and he remembers you very fondly. Oh. Um, Freddie was, um, he was basically an extra. <laughs> but, he, you know, he was an important extra. And I tell him that all the time. And he says, well, you know, I'm glad you appreciate me, you know. <laughs> giving 
and caring, and he loved his wife. He would tell me every day, you're everything to me. Um, all I had to do was wake up and say, hello, good morning, I love you, sweetheart. And for us, it was a magical day. So God and Dick Dale and my mother are my are my secret weapons. I mean, no. all combined. All combined. Sweetheart, all all of us send our love to you, to to you and to all your angels. Lana, thank you for being a great guest on Love the Secret Weapon. You're welcome, sweetheart. And Donna, I want everybody to know not only was Dick Dale a very special uh, and great human being and entertainer for 65 years from 1955 to 2019, but so are you. Thank you, darling. Many blessings. Yes, love.